KZSU, Stanford, KZSU. It is Tuesday, 10 a.m. Henry George program. This is a episode we had in the can for quite a while, recorded in January, so please forgive all the references to the recent inauguration, etc., etc. Hello, this is uh, Mark Molino. I am uh, joined by Jacob Schwartz-Lucas here at KZSU Stanford, and we are joined remotely by Jeff Andrade Fong uh, from uh, Tech for Housing. It's a grassroots organization dedicated to organizing tech around housing. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. And uh, we're also joined by uh, Josh Vincent. Uh, Josh Vincent has been executive director of the Center for the Study of Economics since 1997. He has consulted for more than 75 municipalities, counties, NGOs, and national governments. He works with tax departments and elected officials to promote land value taxation, and he has testified as an expert witness on its impact. He's editor and publisher of Incentive Taxation. Welcome, Josh. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, so uh, i got to say, uh, I am... I am located here in the Bay Area, uh, and I know of many of the housing groups. I I somehow have not uh, caught wind of all of what Tech for Housing is doing. So, uh, yeah, uh, Jeff, could you give uh, maybe an introduction for uh, the mission for Tech for Housing and what it's been up to? Yeah, definitely. Um, so Tech for Housing got started uh, when myself and a couple of my colleagues realized that there, there wasn't a lot of targeted outreach at at uh, other folks in our industry. Um, and there was also this narrative and has been this narrative that people who work in tech are a bunch of disengaged millennials, that they're going to move to the San Francisco or the Bay Area for six months or two years, and then they're going to leave, and that politically they don't matter. And part of this perception, um, this perception is problematic for us because it also means that uh, you know not only are, are people who disagree with us policy-wise saying this, but also the uh, a lot of politicians. So that means they, they just don't feel like they have cover if they do agree with us, and then they just ignore us out of hand if they don't. So a lot of what we've done is to try to do targeted outreach, uh, especially tailored content, um, and we can get into a little bit more of the specific projects we have going, but really targeting other folks that are our peers and getting them to do things and also connecting them with the other YIMBY organizations that are already up and running in the Bay Area. So, uh, yeah, narrative is obviously an important thing. What, what would you say, how would you describe your counter-narrative uh, to, to, I guess, counter the traditional narrative of the tech workers are outsiders coming in and basically ruining what was a good situation? How, how would you frame what, uh, what your narrative is? Well, I think the first thing to recognize is that tech is, tech is a really such a broad uh, category as to be almost meaningless. You know, we have the, the social media platforms that people, you know, Facebook or Google, things that are very explicitly, you know, people think of, that's what you think of when you think of tech. But there's also plenty of companies you could say, like uh, Redfin, for example, they're real estate brokers. They just happen to use up-to-date, you know, data of the industry, um, you know, data sources, and they do data visualizations in ways that I would recognize as the way you do a data visualization. They know what a relational database is, things like this. But they're real estate brokers. And there's any number of other companies that, 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 uh, are what you would think of as tech. They're venture funded. They get talked about in the tech press, but they're also doing. They're just doing updated versions of, of you know things that have been around for a while. Um, you could even think of think Metro Mile is considered a tech company, but they're they, they're car insurers. So I guess first and foremost, tech is uh, we're like everybody else, and we're like previous waves that came to this this region. We there's an economic boom. We came here for better jobs and better lives, and. You know, to think of us as a sort of like very distinct 
alien invading force. One, it's politically problematic, but two, it's just not accurate in terms of the reality. So, uh, yeah, well, were, were, was the group involved uh, during the course of last year when the uh, when the tech tax uh, was was brewing as a possible thing to be added to the uh, ballot? Because I think that was something where you talk about you can't really separate te- uh, tech from not tech, but San Francisco certainly tried to put something out there that did exactly that. Yeah, um, yeah. So that was something that was was on our radar. Um, not a whole lot came of it because it was a little bit uh, it was a little bit ridiculous. But uh, yeah, we to the greatest extent possible, we are tracking a bunch of relevant issues all the way from really Palo Alto up through San Francisco and over into Oakland. Um, and a lot of a lot of what we're doing is coordinating with the people that are local to those those places. Um, so there's there's Yimby groups in Palo Alto, in San Francisco, all over the place, and helping to like amplify their voice and really redirect it at our colleagues that a lot of cases are are more disengaged for for specific reasons. Um, so yeah, we we're involved trying to we're trying to be a force multiplier on everything that's already going on and really target at the other people uh, in the companies that, that work in uh, that work in the industry similar to ours. And as far as targeting goes, what what kind of techniques have you been employing, and and what's been effective? What's what hasn't been so effective? So we started out uh, relatively small. We had a there's only a couple of us writing content right now, but I guess the first project that we put in place was to build some sort of like branding around who we are and what we're doing. You know, because I, I could sit there and write articles with Jeff or my, my uh, collaborator in this uh, Tony Albert. You know, he, we could sit there and write articles, and they're good, and people read them. But by combining all of our content and by bringing in more people as we go uh, under this heading of tech for housing with, you know, we have a Twitter handle, a Facebook page, we have a you know, blog. People don't have to recognize us as individuals. They just have to recognize tech for housing as a brand. And by doing that, we're able to sort of aggregate the influence, aggregate our reach um, by putting everything under this one banner. So that was the first thing that we did. It's, it's really an exercise in, in brand building. Um, and beyond that, it was writing a bunch of content, writing a bunch of educational pieces that are targeted at people, again, like us, that are written using analogies and metaphors that would be uh, accessible to people that work in our industry. Um, and then also beyond that is, is getting into support and calls to action around specific projects. So there was, a, for example, in Menlo Park, they considered an update to their uh, general plan that um, would allow for 10,000 additional units beyond what the zoning last year allowed. And we, along with a bunch of other organizations, uh, helped contribute to that awareness campaign and got a bunch of people to actually write emails into the city council. And so that that was something that we thought was really important, is is focusing on specific projects, specific pieces of legislation, and giving people really concrete, actionable things that they can do. And how would you how would you quantify you know tech for housing what what is how would you quantify what your goals would be for it working and uh, yeah where where do you think you are as far as those goals are right now? That's a really good question. We we definitely have talked a lot about how to measure what we're doing, and, and again, that's sort of like a any any anything that would even remotely qualify as a, a barrier tech company. Again, it's a broad brush. But we are we are uh, empiricists to a fault. We are obsessed with uh, making measurements based on data, and this is something that's really hard for us. Um, I think what we're thinking, the way we're thinking about it more, is in terms of like what projects we're actually able to to get out the door. Um, and we we accomplished a lot of the goals that we set out last year. We were relatively uh, we weren't too ambitious. We wanted to get the blog up. We wanted to have some actual professional looking design, 
and um, get some good content out. And we were pretty happy with that. I think um, this year we're going to continue along with that, you know, the same track of, of getting content out. But some additional projects that we we're taking on are one, uh, building out a network of uh, our colleagues embedded at different companies. So we already have a couple people on board with this, but yeah, you know, we want to have two or three people at Facebook, two people at Google, all, all the major companies, so that when we put out a piece of content or a call to action that we think is particularly important, we want to be able to go to this network of people and be like, this is important. We need you to dump this in your internal like, chat channels. Every company has uh, there's software like Slack. Facebook just uses some sort of internal version of Facebook. I'm sure Google built some you know crazy thing 10 years ago that uh, will never be released to the public. But everybody has these internal channels, and there's always sort of off-topic, non-work-related channels. And a lot of times there's one's focused on policy and politics. So being able to reach that target audience internally via the, this network that we want to build of people that actually work at these companies is, is a huge project for us this year. Um, and I think beyond that, too, we also want to do more – uh, sort of like live events or speaking events and be able to get more uh, of the sort of the leaders in this, this movement. You know, if you feel familiar with Sonia uh, Trous or some of the other folks that are sort of the ringleaders, being able to get them in front of a bunch of uh, a bunch of our colleagues, sort of like where they actually are. I think one of the things about tech, one of the, the sort of negative pieces of the narrative that, that was actually correct is that we were not super engaged. A lot of us have only gotten here six months or two or three years ago not registered to vote, spend 60 hours a week at work in the office. And one of the things we wanted to do was be able to reach people where they are, and a lot of times that's in their office. So a lot of these projects are around how do we reach people actually like where they are. And for us, a lot of times it's at work. So to drill down in the specifics of, of you know land use, how, how when you're experienced with tech workers, how often do you think tech workers think land use affects them personally? Do you think that's a connection most people make or not so much? So the way we think about that is that there's roughly, uh, think of it as a pyramid with three tiers. The top, top of the pyramid is folks uh, like me and some of my immediate friends that we actually know what, we know what Prop 13 is. We know what Prop 98 is. We have, we're, we're way wonky, and this is something that would probably interest us even if we didn't think it was something that, you know, something that needed to be worked on. Um, below that, there's this, this larger tier that's, folks that they are definitely aware that they're aware of a lot of these issues, maybe not super in-depth, but if you sit down and talk to them for 30 minutes, all of a sudden they realize everything that's wrong and basically everything that needs to be done. Um, and then below that, there's sort of everybody else. But even when you get down to everybody else, there isn't a single person in tech or out in the Bay Area that's not thinking about housing prices. And really the challenge is starting with this general concern that everybody has around the state of housing prices and everything that goes along with that and sort of walking them backwards into what are the two to three to four degrees of uh, separation that gets us to these sort of like basic root policy issues that need to be addressed. So it's uh, a more directly answer your question. Everybody's thinking about housing prices. Um, some people are thinking about how land use is affecting them. Um, and that's really just making that connection for the rest of the folks is our challenge. So the, the, the tier two folks that they get the connections, are you converting them to tier one, do you think? Or do you think that they kind of just never are the, the wonkish type? Or No, no, they, they, they do. It's um, I, I almost think of tier two as folks that they do have a wonkish bent, but maybe their you know immediate interests are not necessarily like Bay Area land use policy. Um, but they're all being hurt by housing prices. They all understand if you can get their attention for 30 minutes. And really our challenge is just to get their attention 
And this goes back to giving people concrete, actionable things that they can do. Because it's, it's political organization is hard. It's cognitively costly if you don't already, if you're not just already interested in things, to figure out what are all the issues, what are the actions I can take, and what are the actions I can take that actually matter. So we want to reduce that cost. And especially for this, these tier two folks, giving them uh, easy, actionable, here's like in 500 words, everything that we need you to know about the Menlo Park general plan update. Here's something that you can do in literally five minutes to make an impact. And here's why what you're doing, what we're asking you to do actually will matter. Um, and that's that's how we how we convert folks. And that's our strategy. So, uh, so Jacob, uh, right here in the studio, uh, is is he's here in the Bay Area right now, but he is uh, he he's, lives in New York City. And uh, does does the whole narrative here of tech workers versus the locals does this? I, I guess how does this resonate with you as far as being in a place where there isn't you know the same tech scene, and I guess there isn't kind of this simple narrative. How do you think housing boils down in New York City? I guess is what I'm getting at. Well, I mean, there really is a battle between the newcomers and, and folks that have been there for a long time, and I, I don't think it's a battle that need necessarily exist. Um, you know, if there was just better understanding of of these issues, um, you know, the Bay Area is so focused on these, these emerging um, softwares and technology, uh, so it, it's easy to sort of create this category of tech workers and say, um, you know, depending on what side of the fence you're on, that they're, you know, they're the problem or that, uh, yeah, just, just to just to categorize them as a, a single entity. I think in New York it's probably more about um, uh, young, often white people moving into areas of, say, Brooklyn and uh, – gentrifying. Maybe they work in finance, maybe they work in advertising, um, some of these other types of industries. But really the dynamic is is uh, very similar, that people want to be in these dense urban areas where there's lots of uh, opportunity um, and there's residents that are there before that uh, you know don't necessarily have these high-paying jobs. And so that tends to bid up the price of real estate. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you know the gentrification story is something that is very easy to consume, and it really does take the role of any kind of policy uh, out of it. It isn't something that you know people really have to say there's any choice that matters. It's more of just the you know some kind of people, some other kind of people, and actions they take. And policy is really no agent uh, whatsoever in that. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I, I will uh, move over to uh, Josh. And by the way, anyone, I, I don't think this could be, like, too much of a scrum if people just, you know, feel free to interrupt, interject in any interesting thoughts. Uh, so, Josh, as I understand it, you 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 make recommendations to cities themselves. Uh, is, is, could you talk about, you know, I guess the very uh, broad idea of, of what your job usually entails? Uh, yeah, actually, we talk to governments, but... We also talk to neighborhood groups, civic groups, and gentrification is a problem everywhere. I'm in Philadelphia, uh, and neighborhoods that were very affordable until 15, 10 years ago are being rapidly transformed. And I deal mainly with the economics of the issue. We have, uh, and Jeff was talking about the regulatory problems and on the Tech for Housing page, the legal barriers to construction, but... One thing the tech boom has done is it's created 
an incredible amount of value, uh, value added to the geography of the area. And that can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing. What we want to do is make economics uh, a, a central part of the argument and, and the discussion. And once that's done, um, what, what you were referencing about gentrification is that it's an emotional issue almost entirely. It's hard to quantify. Uh, it's hard to describe accurately. But you can describe and quantify and measure increases in site values, and that's what we try to do. I, I believe that tech workers are a lot like the sweatshop workers of 100 years ago in the tenements of New York City. Uh, the Tier 3, which Jeff didn't quite get to, I'd like to hear about that, um, I think the Tier 3 tech workers are trying to make it in the Bay Area, but they can't afford uh, either with a good lifestyle, you know, a short commute, or they can't afford uh, a place to live unless they have 25 roommates. And so what we want to do is unlock the value so that the people, and it can be tech people, and it can be, you know, people that dig ditches for a living, uh, can share in on that added value and and hopefully reduce the resentment and sort of, you know, class fighting that's going on in the Bay Area. And it's really unfortunate. I think the YIMBY uh, movement is, is very, very hopeful if, if we go forward with it. But it has to be quantified. It has to have numbers on it. That's what, I, that's what we're here for. It's interesting to say that uh, I, I believe the narrative being set up of the anti-tech worker narrative tends to reduce, you know, I guess, the humanity of tech workers, but also, I guess, the, the ability for tech workers to empathize with people who are not them, because they usually frame it as a very simple story of tech workers versus the local homeowners who just want a simple life. And I think there's a lot of empathy tech workers have for who is in an even worse position, which are local people who are not in tech and renting like they are, because they are the people who are suffering everything tech workers are, who are just the place they are, but in pretty much across the board without the paychecks. So tech workers, they, in a lot of ways, you know, are in the position of fighting for the restaurant workers, the teachers who can't even find 25 roommates. They're, you know, being bussed, you know, not even bussed in. They're commuting in by car from places like Tracy, Manteca, and all these really far off places. And I, I guess, uh, yeah, to talk, uh, Jeff, do you feel like, uh, do you feel there's a role for tech workers to to be allies in, in a formal sense with... Uh, other people who are affected in the, in the housing crisis in the same way? Yeah, absolutely. And there are um, definitely folks working on on that angle, which is um, it gets the, the politics out here get a little bit complicated as, as I've been kind of become more and more involved in these issues over the last last three years. You sort of it's like an onion. You just keep peeling layers, and there's just always another layer over why the weird political alliances, particularly in San Francisco, exist. Um, and one, one thing you touched on, I think you're right, is that the, the narrative of evil invading gentrifying tech workers definitely causes a lot of people, and this is, this is maybe more particularly to this, you know, tier three, and, and by tier three I mean like they're the lowest level of engagement um, in terms of thinking about politics and land use uh, out here. Why a lot of them are, are turned off from this because they're like, I... I don't really understand too much what's going on. I know that I'm supposedly the cause of all these problems. I don't really feel like engaging. I'd rather just 
you know, go to my job and worry about myself and not try to get into a, you know, a street fight with somebody protesting and was like bombing on me. So, uh, yeah, it, that, that narrative is something that we're fighting because it shuts down positive discourse. It shuts down ways that we can like very clearly build alliances that move us, move us forward, uh, where we are sort of sharing the value that, uh, that, that Josh made reference to. Um, and one of the things to note about the scene out here is there's this thing that some, some of the NIMBYs, they like to call it the, the NIMBY affordable complex. And it's this very strange alliance of, this is more particular to San Francisco, but it's generalizable, of sort of these old school, like, like they came out here in the 60s. A lot of them are, a lot of them are kind of aging hippie types uh, out in San Francisco mm-hmm. that um, they, they own their homes. And uh, due to some weird tax laws we have out here, Prop 13, their their tax rates are frozen at one percent of assessed value at the time that they purchase their home so they are completely and totally insulated from the housing market at this point even though they're enjoying in very like ridiculous uh, asset appreciation in terms of the land values of their homes so there's this weird alliance between this group with people that are the, the more of the the low-income working class I'm renting or I'm in a rent-controlled unit that I'm worried is going to be converted to condos and I'm going to like not be able to find you know, a spot here. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work being done to try to reach out to that, that latter group and, and work on policies that move all this stuff forward, but also move it forward in a timeline that, that makes an alliance possible. Because like, the reality is if you just stripped all, all building restrictions off of, say, San Francisco, you know, you, it would still take a long time to stabilize housing prices. It's, it's take a while. And, you know, people don't experience outcomes in the aggregate or over the long run. They experience them day to day and as individuals. So that's one of the challenges is what's 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 a set of transitionary policies that can move us towards ultimately like, you know, policies that allow us to increase housing supply and, you know, actually get everybody on board that we need on board. So well, uh, the other day when we spoke, Jeff, um, you mentioned uh, an idea for using uh, BART land that was currently utilized for surface parking and actually uh, using that to maybe provide um, more housing, which would, of course, increase the supply and thus lower the, you know, it would tend to have the effect to lower the, the price. But then you also had about some ideas about using that land for affordable housing. Seems to me that, that something like that would be a win-win um, step in the right direction. Yes, uh, totally. So this, this is an idea, uh, just for context, uh, the BART is our uh, sort of regional uh, rail system. It's similar to what's out in D.C., if y'all are familiar with that. Um, it's falling apart. Uh, we passed a bond last year to, for some capital improvements, but it's not going to make it long-term sustainable. But one of the interesting things about BART is supposedly it has owns more surface parking area than any public agency on the side of the Mississippi. That's what I was told anyway. Um, and there is this idea that, hey, why don't we convert a lot of this parking to below-ground parking and build a ton of housing on it? Um, and one of the things that I, I hope we see is, and what, I'd be, what I'm advocating for here that, uh, that Jacob's referencing, is the, the system that BART as an agency to maintain title um, or in some way we maintain ownership over that that land and then just reap in the rewards, basically just be landlords so that, that those funds can be poured back into the system, um, which is basically how the, uh, the, the Hong Kong Metro Transit Railway uh, right. operates and, and funds itself. And it's hugely profitable. It's hugely successful. And there's an opportunity to emulate the same model here. 
Um, and this, it, I'm excited about this actually because it's uh, it's something that at least a couple members of the BART board of directors have talked about. That's why it's, it even dawned on me to think about this. Um, so uh, I, as far as like the, the internal politics or like the you know the barriers to actually building housing in each of the municipalities that BART runs through. That's like a whole other set of questions. But yeah, it's, and, it would be something that would be very exciting for, for the region. And this could really be a sort of model for how it, it might work on a larger scale. Um, you know, what Hong Kong does is it, it basically owns the land and, um, you know, it rents it out to private developers. And that's kind of a more extreme version of what would be ideal where you have people actually owning individual parcels of land, but they're paying in proportion to this um, increase in value that, that comes along with um, tech booms and, uh, you know, other gold rushes, if if you want to call them that. Um, mm-hmm. And this this could be an example of how it could work in the rest of the area with, with something like uh, the land value tax. Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's interesting to talk about something which is you describe as a as a win win. But I, I think in the Bay Area, in a place as saturated as it is, nothing is ever quite so simple. I, I was thinking of uh, talking about the municipalities. Palo Alto, a few months ago, was reviewing a uh, a former park and ride parking lot, which has been re like just basically decommissioned, which they were looking to create micro housing with it kind of it was a novel thing, no parking and. Uh, Palo Alto is an extremely strenuous approval process, and they actually managed to check every box of this. And they still, the locals were ex- still saying, this will increase traffic to some extent. I don't see why we should approve this. And I guess that's the thing of, would the BART, would the BART process, would the value capture this creates? Do you think if you are even the NIMBY type, would this... Would this have something for them, or is that even part of the uh, of how you one would sell it? Uh, um, Josh here, actually, we've looked at both sides of it. Uh, if you have, as Jeff is suggesting, essentially a public transport-oriented development around BART stops, where yeah, you're renting the land uh, on an on an annual basis. If you want to have affordable housing, you make sure that the rent is uh, commensurate with uh, local incomes. But at the same time, what's happening in San Francisco with Prop 13 is that you've got these folks that bought their homes in the late 60s and in the mid-70s, and they're, someday they're going to be very rich when they, when they sell. And so we want to open up the public value around the BART stops. But at the same time, we have to stop encouraging people to think of their land, their little plot of land, as a casino where, you know, they're going to hit a jackpot someday when they sell. And the person that moves in to even a single-family house is going to pay incredibly high property taxes because of Prop 13. So you, on the one hand and then the other hand, you've got to reconcile the two. Uh, most good mass transit in the early part of the 20th century was built without automobiles in mind. And I think that it's, it's a rather emotional Again, I go back to sort of saying emotional isn't great. It is. But you can't think emotionally about the traffic, especially where you're going to zone against automobile traffic. And a few decks below ground is expensive, but it's doable. But 
quite right. In Oakland, around the BART stops, there are vast acres of flat, well-served by infrastructure land, and it's a crime it's not being used. There was, a, there was a notable thing last summer, I guess, as far as this idea of you know how transit works in the Bay Area. It was the BART social media director or whatever, social media intern, uh, was posting that. Uh, yes. Yeah, it was it was saying, oh, we have to make hard choices. You know, the BART, we just don't have the money. It doesn't work. We all agree this is a broken system, but, you know, we're running out of money, and this is, this is you know, if you don't pay for it, you're not going to get the subway. And it, I think, yeah, it's... That's the kind of dichotomy that people they try to sell the narrative as. It's it's you you want a subway, you have to basically pour all your budget into it. But it does. Yeah, I think a person who tends to look at the bigger picture looks at the idea. When you build a subway, there is a certain amount of value that you know just kind of flows out and doesn't go back into the subway. And I, I guess the question is: is that is that a story that can be that can be sold to people, or is this? simply too wonkish for the kind of person who does resonate with, you're right, you know, BART just isn't, <laughs> the budget doesn't add up. I, I think I'd like to chime in on this one. I, I think that that story can definitely be sold. So I, so in addition to the Tech for Housing uh, uh, project, I also contribute to Market Urbanism, uh, if y'all are familiar with the blog. But uh, a year or two, two and a half years ago, I, I, I wrote an entire Piece, a couple pieces on the metro transit uh, railway system in Hong Kong because I was so fascinated. I was, I was like, why are we not doing this? This makes all of the sense in the world. And um, I mean, to the extent that I, it got pretty good readership, but to the extent that I, I had conversations since then with people where we're like, here, why, why can't BART, you know, why, why doesn't BART work? Why do we have to always pour money into it? And I was like, here, I've got, a, I've got 500 words. <laughs> read them and you'll understand what we would have to do to make BART run like it like it could. And it clicks. And this is again in Jacob reference, you know, we, we had a conversation about about this whole idea of, of funding BART and I want to we're gonna write some content for the tech for housing bit around it. It seems like this concept of funding a, a mass transit system in this way is actually not super complicated once you get people to sit down for five minutes and listen to it. And it seems like it's not complicated in a way that that explaining what L V T that would an actual land value tax is. I kind of want to use this as a, I think because it's easier, it could be a, a gateway concept, um, if you'll pardon my reference to the 90s drug war, uh, on on how to like get people into understanding like the grand uh, idea of like how things could work if you just had like a straightforward like blanket land value tax. So I'm, I'm, I'm super optimistic about it, and I think it's a relatively easy sell once you get people's attention. Yeah, I think it's. A, I think that we've seen that it's a pretty easy sell in New York right now. They uh, the MTA in the city opened up a new branch of the Second Avenue subway, or actually the first branch of the Second Avenue subway on the east side, and right. it was easily demonstrated. Even the New York Post and the Daily News, the tabloids, uh, put up maps showing the incredible increase in land values. Uh, in in prediction or in anticipation of opening the subway line, even before uh, it was open, values on yeah before it was open, right. they knew it was coming. Uh, and another ex- thought experiment: Transport for London wanted to see what would happen if to land values if they announced a project and they announced a dummy project, a subway project, and immediately the land values were bid up be it buildings, be it vacant lots. And then transport said, ha, got you. 
and they actually announced a different route, but it proved the point that the value is created by public investment, and so much of that public investment is provided by people who have very low wages or pay sales taxes. Uh, people that might not ever use the system have to pay into it, and that's something that we can address and, and demonstrate with numbers. So I guess you're talking earlier about you know land being a, a casino that you're investing in. It, I guess the question is, is this something inherent to the American character that has to be overcome? I, I There's a book I was reading the other day about how to, is the, the, the land money pyramid, and it was about investing basically land in Lancaster, California, back in the 1950s, and how it's just going to be the next Los Angeles, it's going to boom, and this is your way to the top. Uh, I think people really love a get quick scheme like that. Uh, but he was talking about, oh, he found about there's like a new uh, you know utility being put up, and he bought all the land there and made a good amount of money. And he kind of comes away with the idea like, oh, I'm clever, I'm thoughtful, and I deserve this money. And I guess if you have the idea that you know London puts a new subway stop and then people make a lot of money there, how do you tell them that this isn't the virtuous way that society should work? <laughs> Essentially, you have to uh, have the community be outraged. The community has to say, hey, we paid for this. You didn't lift a finger. You're not even that clever. Because a lot of land speculators lose. You know, look at, look at Florida in the 1920s. People sank fortunes into the land, and it turned out to be worth nothing because nothing followed. But the community creates that value. Uh, the lucky man is, that's all he is, the lucky man. He, he hasn't done anything to earn that money. And people have to realize they're being, in a sense, swapped. There is something about our culture that um, sort of lauds the, the rentier, as it were. I mean, just look at who uh, took office a couple of days ago, Donald Trump. How did he make most of his money? Well, he's a classic example of a of, of a rentier of a you know a real estate mogul um he doesn't pay any uh taxes because he depreciates the value of his buildings and um yeah th- th- maybe there is something about the american psyche that loves this idea of getting to the top without um contributing but i i think there's another side of the american character that likes making things that are useful and and that's what I think what's so interesting about the Bay Area is that, um, you know, there's all these problem solvers here, people who who do want to improve things and um, who have such optimism about it. And, uh, you know, they're getting blamed for all of the gentrification that's going on. And I think um, that it's basically identifying the wrong not even the wrong group of people, but the wrong types of behaviors that are responsible. Because if you just think about it a priori, right, G- gentrification, what is it? Okay, so so things are getting better such that people want to live in a particular area and they're willing to pay more to live there. So, um, you know, that on its own is a good thing, right? If the subways get better, if um, police uh, get better, if the fire department is better. But so... So the only reason that would be a bad thing is that uh, it, it causes uh, displacement. But what causes displacement is not the fact that things are getting better. That's not the tr- that's not the real culprit. It's the fact that the supply of housing doesn't rise and fall with with that increased demand. So 
they're identifying the the wrong activities as as being the the culprit of of people suffering. It's really it, it's it's really the the fact that people are speculating on on land that's the problem, not that there's more production through the tech industry or other industries. So, so yeah, I guess there's something in this. I guess there's a, there's a narrative in the housing scenes. It's actually I guess something of a schism to a small degree of. The problem is supply and demand. That's the the typical you know uh, SF Yimby you know platform of we need to increase the supply of housing and it will, it will work. But I guess uh, some other people would say the supply of land is limited, and you're not this alone cannot solve the housing problem because no matter if you build new units, you really you know need the supply of well utilized land and well zoned land won't increase by itself. And I guess just approval processes and building isn't enough in itself to, I guess, the big picture of efficient land use creating uh, units. And I, I guess, do, do you see, uh, Jeff, a, uh, any kind of disagreement in, in your circles on, on, on an issue like that? Yeah, so that's actually a really interesting point that I, I have seen uh, thrown back and forth a little bit. Um, I think First off, I'd like to say that most of the folks in the NIMBY uh, movement, most of us understand with, in pretty great detail how bad Prop 13 is. And like in theory, if we could like wave a wand and have reform, if we could get a land value tax statewide and have that be the main source of funding, um, how great that would be. Um, however, this, this uh, back and forth between, like, does the situation get any better if we actually do just allow uh, the housing supply to become more flexible? Um, or does that mean you just unleash, you know, the only thing that's constraining increases in labor productivity, meaning then that land rents will then continue to just climb higher and higher and higher, therefore, like, nothing ever actually, like, gets better? That That is a discussion that's happened. I... I think where I fall on that and most of the other NIMBYs is that, uh, one, allowing supply to catch up or at least chase demand is a very, very necessary. It may not be completely sufficient uh, condition for having all of our dreams come true, but it's necessary and it will help a lot. And, and I, I take a, I look at examples like Tokyo, for, uh, for one, where they have an extremely flexible housing uh, market and prices have been relatively stable. Now you can zoom into the micro level and find specific neighborhoods in Tokyo where prices have gone up, um, but they've also absorbed massive increases in population um, and have been able to have, you know, like 50% price increases instead of, you know, 250% price increases like places out here over very short periods of time. So, um, yeah, I think I think that's where I and most of the UMB stand on it, that the you know, the, you need you need to allow housing the housing markets to to increase in supply. That it it will help, and um, and that like longer term, yeah, land value taxation of some kind is probably definitely beneficial, maybe probably necessary to prevent prices from perpetually escalating. But I think ultimately that that has to assume that labor productivity will perpetually continue to increase at the rate it has been. And if that's not the case, then the problem's not as big. But that's uh, I'm ready to hear people push back on that. So uh, do, does uh, your organization have an official line on Prop 13, and or do, does it need to? Does it, is it, uh, yeah. No, so we, we, we do not, and I don't think most of the YIMBY organizations have an official line on it. I mean, if you, if you follow uh, housing Twitter, then yeah, people bash Prop 13 all the time. Um, but there's sort of an order of operations here where fixing the land use regulations is 
sort of the, it's the first step in the order of operations, and it's also increasingly politically feasible. Prop 13 is such a third rail in California politics that nobody, not even Governor Brown, thinks that they can touch it. And Governor Brown is like the honey badger of, of California politics. He makes things happen that shouldn't be possible politically. So um, I think... I think in some years in the future, that was gonna, will increasingly come under fire and come on the table. So, so take devil's advocate here. Do you think its status as a third rail is aided by the fact that even groups that, that constantly are stewing over uh, Prop 13 status feel, oh, we can't touch it, it's too popular? Do you think that in, in itself kind of pushes the window of what is considerable action on it further and further towards status quo? Sure, 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 sure. Um, I think the way I'd answer that is it's it's not that it's not talked about, but um, I mean nobody's nobody is hiding their opinion on it. We put it like that. Like and in fact, when we have these, you know, you go to a planning commission or city council meeting, and you have these sort of homeowner nimbies get up and talk about you know uh, quality of life, whatever that means, or you know, protecting their views. They do get openly criticized for basically being paper millionaires that benefit from you know. Um, from bed, they benefit from being tax uh, tax protected, petite landed gentry. Um, so nobody's nobody's hiding their opinion uh, about that. Um, I think it's just where we're spending our our time advocating right now. Because again, we can go to an Oakland Planning Commission meeting and talk to the Planning Commission and influence changes in, in zoning amendments. To even think about Prop 13, that's all state level, and it's not only state level. It requires an amendment to the California State Constitution, which is. It's a, it's a very it's a much bigger uh, boulder to move, and I think we're starting out with smaller bites um, as things kind of scale up in terms of the advocacy. Right, and um, you know, uh, Steve Barton was one of the people involved in getting U one passed. You know, it, it it wasn't phrased as a property tax, but it had many of the the sort of same effects, and that was um, that you know if you're going to rent out property. Uh, commercially, that um, yeah, you're going to have to pay more in taxes, and so I, I wonder if Jeff and Josh think that those are sort of the stepping stones to something larger. Uh, well, as far as what Jeff was saying, you can affect local action immediately by going to the planning commission and changing zoning. Uh, one thing that creates or takes away land value or desirability, if you want to get out of the economics, is zoning. Zoning trumps all. It's like a, it's like a god. Uh, Prop 13, yeah, it's going to be almost impossible to change in the near term unless you come at it from, uh, from the flanks. For example, going after commercial property, which is subject to Prop 13, and almost nobody considers that. that non-residential property is, is going along for the ride, too. Uh, on Prop 13 and maintaining that quality of life. But when you change zoning or land use regulations, you change value. And by clawing back the hyper-restrictive zoning of the Bay Area, you're, you're therefore going to have more affordable land and more units per, per, per uh, you know, parcel. So uh, yeah, we're talking about you know the uh, the parking lot in Palo Alto. It is is currently not being built. Maybe in the future. But I thought it was interesting that uh, uh, Councilperson Philseth, one of the council people, started commenting on: Is it correct that if we increase the zoning specification of this parking lot to buildings, there's going to be a large amount of 
of value created for the, the the owner of this parking lot, and it doesn't seem right that they should just profit this much. And I is it a, I guess is that also is is does it make sense that that's a narrative that people can get in the case of the benefit of upzoning? Uh, and also, do you think yeah do you think this scales to looking at how everyone benefits from from land values, or do you think that there's an inherent problem in phrasing all of our role in being small-time speculators is, uh, is something we just really don't think about? Um, that's, a, um, that's a good question. It kind of goes back in this, this uh, back and forth, like the like what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Like, do, do you start with um, something like land value taxation? Or I guess, how, how, do you, how do you phrase it such that people can understand that the issue is like, if you liberalize the zoning and people are arguing that oh, you're going to create a bunch of value, you're like, yes, therefore we should definitely have, uh, we should definitely capture some of that value back. Um, I don't know. That's a, that's actually, a, that's a tough one. Yeah. Cause I guess the, the, the two ways to look at it is it's kind of, you know, attacking the flanks. It's like, it's a landlord tax. We all hate the big commercial landlords. And it's like, oh, we also can't stand all oh, the commercial owners who are just out of state and not even running it. And then I, I feel the idea is you can always, is it really the winning attitude to kind of demonize from the outside in? And will that also scale the rest of the way there? Or does it just kind of create a solid core where then everyone is now the appropriate amount of righteous but you still have the same issues. I guess that's the that's the. So I think, yeah. So I, I think this is this is something that uh, to go back to. I meant I think I mentioned order of operations. So in my mind, the like plausible path for the future around here is we gradually succeed at the local, the regional, at the state level in loosening up these zoning restrictions that would naturally allow uh, a lot of infill because again the, the the land values around here support way more intensive use of land, even without a land value tax, than what's currently, you know, what we currently have. And I think in that future, just the entire Bay Area becomes even more and increasingly urban, and a lot, uh, you just see a, a lot fewer uh, owner-occupier homeowners. Um, and I think in that world um, where most people or far fewer people actually own their own homes, that sort of, that, that uh, idea of a land value tax, where you feel like you're just taxing your landlord, um, becomes a lot more politically possible. And uh, I think, um, I think uh, Josh, you'd also mentioned the uh, split role proposal for uh, reforming Prop 13. Yeah, that's, that's, actually, that's actually plausible. That could happen uh, in, in the short term. And that's just where we, you know, Prop 13 is rescinded in some way or reformed for commercial property. So I think the key is to loosen up restrictions, allow the sort of like natural course of events to, to play out where everything becomes more urban. And I think in that environment, um, people are more uh, open to what feels or more so feels like taxing their landlords. There's no such thing as wrong. Uh, if we look, uh, if we sort of put our eye on Oakland, I think that's a really, really interesting case because so much of Oakland is still zoned industrial. Uh, and when you change the zoning from industrial to residential, going to be increasing the the land value overnight by by a factor of 10 or 20 uh, as far as what the even the assessor would say so Oakland is a great case because we're moving away from industrial zoning it's uh, the traditional 20th century 
industrial base is not going to come back, but you can provide lots of uh, lots of building, commercial or residential, in Oakland. And I think that's a kind of a case study that I know that my outfit, along with uh, Jake's group, is going to be pursuing in the in the very near future, because Oakland is sort of, uh, as you know, there's so many absentee property owners of commercial and industrial buildings, and they're such terrible owners. We again go back to the emotions. I mean, these owners have killed people. Look at the fire in Oakland. Uh, yep, yep. Through neglect and through blight. And that's that's a strong a strong message. You know, do we want artists or do we want, you know, schmucks that, that own property, let them go to rack and ruin and keep the zoning uh, so that, you know, people won't come in and use it. So uh, do you think uh, do you think there's much of a chance in, in California, I guess, uh, of really changing the way zoning is allowed? Because as it is now, basically the you know, uh, zoning plan that any city will implement, they, anything goes. And I guess you're talking earlier about Tokyo's flexible plans. I'm not sure I understand all the details, but as I understand it, there are very few zoning designations that are very, you know, general, and you really can't amend them. And as I understand, upzoning is always possible. For example, even if it's in du- like even if it's commercial, you can put a residential there, but not vice versa. You can't put an industrial in the middle of a neighborhood, um, and that would really alone uh, change a lot in you know how zoning is done here. But given the choice between changing land use policy as far as taxation goes and changing it as far as taking away their power to zone, how do you feel? the local cities would come down on such a such a choice as it were right um yeah so they'll have to be drug kicking and screaming into into the future unfortunately but um yeah i mean to to speak to the japanese style setup and this is as relevant to how we might have to move forward in california um land use is is a national matter and i don't necessarily think we need need to have that decided nationally uh in the u.s context i don't think that makes sense but um, the municipalities don't really have, they don't have direct zoning authority. Um, and then within, uh, within Japan, they have, it's only like six or eight different zoning, like zoning designations, like period. And then each of them, it's actually peculiar. The way to think about each of those designations is as like a, a maximum nuisance. Like there's, it's almost like there's the most restrictive uh, designation for zoning. And then each additional one is increasingly less restrictive. So they have some like very basic stuff to separate industrial and like residential uses and things like that, but it's it's very broad brush. It it kind of feels like what zoning I believe, and someone can correct me here, looked like uh, the turn of you know like 100 150 years ago in New York, where you only have like uh, I think it was like residential, commercial, and mixed use, and most of the city was designated mixed use. Um, so, but move, moving to the more flexible uh, uh, um, system of zoning. Um, it's, it's probably going to take uh, some state-level reform, which – and then there are uh, the newly elected state – I believe he's an assembly member. Um, he may – I believe he, was, he might be a senator. Uh, Scott Weiner. He is a senator, yes. Forward a, senator, thank you. He's uh, put forward legislation um, that's basically a repeat of what Jerry Brown had tried to push last year that um, – significantly reduces the ability of uh, local municipalities to, to do their own zoning 
if their zoning is not allowing housing uh, housing supply to increase by a certain amount. And there's like a complicated set of formulas and these very like wonky things called RENAs that are supposed to tell cities how much they have to allow to be built and so on and so forth. But there there is movement to basically just supersede local control because it's not working. So I, I will say, like, we are we are people who think about this a lot, and there are so many fronts going on concurrently that even, you know, even our heads are spinning to some degree. And, and if you talk to an average person and talk about all the complexity of all these different possibilities for reform, it it's a lot. You can see why they might perform, uh, prefer a very simple narrative of, well, tech workers have made a good thing bad. Let's just try to scale this back. How do you simplify this giant complex system and is something that is that can be consumed by by more people totally um that's that's a really good question it's something that we we obviously are continuing to grapple with um in terms of reaching our core constituency because a lot of what we are trying to do with tech for housing is not necessarily engage in the public debate but reach and activate people that should already agree with us if we can get their attention and explain things and and digestible bits and give them something relatively low cost to do for, you know, to, to help move policy. In terms of that larger issue, I think, I think some of that is continuing to do a lot of outreach and thinking about how to, figuring out the ways we need to message, but also making alliances with, how should I put this? So everybody gets their news from somewhere, right? Everybody has some trusted source on any number of issues that, that they are, that they, they trust to actually distill down and tell them what they need to know. And within, like, say, uh, say affordable housing developers, for example, you know, a lot of them are work with community service providers and all these different nonprofits that cater to and provide support to these communities that are working class, uh, traditionally marginalized, that feel threatened by this influx of, of what we're calling tech workers. Um, making alliances with those folks that run those organizations and talking to them because a lot of them are just as wonky as we are. Um, and convincing them of building consensus with them and having them tailor that message to what's effectively their constituents, I think that's that's the way forward uh, locally out here. So, so hypothetically, let's say I am a tech worker. I'm just kind of head down. I maybe think about who the president is. I vote for that, but I don't think much about politics. I just work, and you know, I hang out with friends sometimes. And yeah, how 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 do I get hooked? How how am how is this brought to my attention that there is choices that matter to me? Definitely. So if I'm talking to you directly as that as that tech worker, um, well, actually take a step back. Let's say you're probably. Let's say you're not even in yeah. the room with me. Let's say that you're you're where you are, and I'm just you know kind of in some cubicle you know across town. How are you even going to get up? How are you even going to start talking to me? Definitely, definitely. That's so. The way we start talking to you is by not talking to you. We talk to your friend that is wonkier than you are, that you talk politics with occasionally, and that you trust, uh, whose opinion you trust. So we convert that person because they already care more and they already have more background knowledge and say, listen, we have this very like minor thing. We need people to write letters. We need people to care about this one specific thing this week and then they forget about it. So we are looking to amplify the message by finding other people that are, then this is, this is sort of like tier two folks, right? That are more engaged than a lot of people. You only need to get a little bit of their attention and they all have friends and they all have friends at the different companies that uh, have employees that we're trying to reach. So that's really our strategy there. 
Do you find much resistance within the tech worker community? Are there are there skeptics, cynics, uh, any of the above? Yeah, um, skeptics, no. Uh, I don't think anybody disagrees with the basic analysis that there's too many people and too much money chasing too little housing, therefore we need to build more of it or we get what we have. Um, cynics, yeah, we, we haven't gotten, it hasn't been too much of an issue for us, but I have heard people express the opinion that why should I care? I'll just I'll just get that promotion. Or yeah, I'm spending forty percent of my income, but it's not that bad. And you know, all these people that are protesting, stopping my bus from getting me to my office. You know, you know, if they don't want to, if they don't want to, uh, if they're going to stand in the way of building more housing and not uh, not do anything about this, then they're the ones that are going to get displaced anyway. So you know, to hell with them. There, there's a little bit of that sentiment, but I think by and large. The community, the industry, tech workers—you know—broad brushstrokes again um, are are more optimistic and more. Uh, the average tech worker, do you think they really realize the difference between how the, the uh, transport systems are run here versus the rest of the world? Do you think they realize how nice the uh, you know Hong Kong has it, and and why that might be the case, or do you think this is something that's just completely out of their uh, you know sphere of, of attention? Um, average tech worker, that might be hard to say. Um, Americans? No, they have no idea. If they're from Europe or Asia, yes, they know. Yeah, I I guess it's a, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's, a, there's a lot of, you know, complicated things that, you know, the border between emotions and, and wonks. And I guess, yeah, how much, I guess, Josh, for like, when you are making appeals for, you know, policy, how much do you re- reserve for emotion, and how much do you think really should and is bloodless? Uh, when I'm talking to citizens, you know, civic groups, or, you know, blogging, uh, you have to start with something that's going to grab somebody's gut, their heart. Um, you know, sort of the Alinskyite thing, except in a different way. Um, you find the bad actors uh, in a neighborhood, you know, the slumlord. Uh, the people that own vacant lots that are filled with trash and garbage that cut your own property values, and you get them, the citizens, pissed off, if I may say. And then they go to their council person. The council person says, okay, you know, now what? What do we do? Then, then you run the numbers, and then you have to become very precise in your your analytics of what would happen with a land value tax or what would happen if you reduced a local uh, wage tax, that kind of a thing. Then, you, then you're getting into the numbers and you're getting into the metrics. But it's always an emotional connection. And the Bay Area right now is a bunch of raw nerves, <laughs> as far as I can see whenever I've been out there. When it comes to housing and space for people and sitting in traffic for hours, there's a lot of people who think something's wrong, and so we have to tie it together for them. So, so is is the Bay Area less wonky or more wonky in, in I guess different areas than other cities you've you've encountered? Oh, uh, except for DC, which is wonky in, you know, 500,000 different ways with 500,000 different disciplines, uh, San Francisco and Oakland and the whole Bay Area are wonky. You have more NGOs, nonprofits, uh, you know, government associations, the Bay Area Association of Governments, it's just intense. 
it's great for for somebody you know like me or Jeff or Jake, uh, but it's intensely wonky and very exciting. So I guess the question is, if there is so much you know wonky spirit in the air, you know why is everything broken here, and why is the DC Metro one of the worst funded you know uh, or just you know yeah it's out there. Why can't why doesn't that lead to more results? Well, wonk uh, to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, is often means you've got a niche that you've got uh, you've got a specialty base of knowledge that no one else has, that, that's what makes you the wonk. And so how do you plug that into the bigger picture of the society in the Bay Area or the D.C. metro area? Now, the D.C. metro, it's a pretty simple uh, problem. It's just like BART. There's no money coming in, and uh, you can't get the value from all this additional federal government wealth that's out there, value value that's been created by the federal government, and you can't get it into the metro. Uh, you have wonks that know how, but they don't meet with other wonks per se. I mean, this is, sounds like what Jeff is doing, and he's also filtering from you know, Tier 1, Tier 2, to Tier 3. I think that's essential. You have all this expertise, but there's no brain, central brain, if that makes sense. Uh, totally. I, I just wanted to say that uh, in, in my thinking about all this, I, I make a, a very clear distinction between politics and policy. And wonks are great at policy. That does not necessarily mean they're great at politics. And as we've, you know, the last year, is, uh, we've kind of got this tech for housing thing off the ground and been trying to connect policy ideas in terms of, uh, like, things that are politically actionable. Like, that's, that's a whole different exercise um, it's, uh, organizing people and getting them to do things is very different from sitting around sitting around a table over beers or coffee with a bunch of other wonks that have all read at least half of the papers that you've read and are going to debate you know, the finer points of you know, the definition of economic growth or, or whether or not we should be debating you know, uh, Pareto optimality versus like Hicks-Collar optimality. Like that's, that's a very different uh, conversation and set of exercises. So... Um, yeah, I just wanted to, to make that make that distinction. Well, I think there's there's something in the air of even like we're entering an era of extreme, you know, hostility to the idea of of being wonks. I think some people feel like a statistician; they can make anything say anything. I think the same same idea is like all stats are lies. All you know, all policy wonks are just they do whatever their bosses tell them to create is the right policy. And it's it's interesting you bring up in the tech scene that you need to talk to friends you trust to think about policy. But how do you sell to, I guess, in the political landscape, you look at, you know, everyone who just feels drain the swamp, everything's broken. How are you supposed to say, oh, but we have the policy we thought through and we're right, as opposed to all the wonks who have led to policies that have failed? Because uh, they're not going to spend the time thinking about it. I'm, I'm curious for someone who's been in many different regions, Josh, you know, how you think people who just think this is all, you know, wonks and dirty word. What, what do you what do you say to them? Uh, it, it has been a dirty word, and uh, facts are whatever uh, you you make them want to be. But one thing you can do is follow the uh, follow the example of a lot of governments all over the world right now, which is open data. And open data is has arrived in the Bay Area, I think, with a vengeance. It's pretty good, which means that anybody can look at it. And if anybody can look at the data, instead of having, you know, the man behind the curtain, uh, you get to grab the data, massage it yourself, and 
and see if you can disprove what the wonks are saying. And with open data, and you're a wonk and you know you're right, you're, you'll be confident in, in letting that out there. I mean, I just got all the, uh, you know, from Oakland, uh, all the manhole cover locations, I mean, that kind of thing. So the data is out there, and it's being made available on an incredible, uh, incredibly huge basis. So I think that's the way to go, is that the, the wonk no longer sits you know, behind the desk, the wonk has to go out there and and market. There, you've got a good idea. Okay, market, show it, prove it. There, there was a there was a series of articles a few weeks ago uh, by uh, Scott Alexander about he was extremely angry that there were like two different articles that took the same data set on I, I believe it was school choice and saying. The experts, they agree it works. And then also the experts they agree they don't work. And it's all about whether you take kind of not applicable, don't agree, don't know, if you count it or don't count it. You can draw headlines and say exactly the opposite of the other headline. And I guess his point is, well, if you look at the raw data, you can make your own conclusions. But, you know, how often is the average person going to start plotting histograms? And, you know, if, if even if open data is out there, how do you reach everyone who may not be an Excel or wizard per se? That is a good yeah. I'll throw it to Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll um, I'll speak with reference to the Bay Area because you know, we're all special little snowflakes out here. Um, I think I think our problem. Well, I think one thing with with having open data that it is, it is huge. Um, I don't think it's a silver bullet by any means, but all of a sudden when the raw data exists out there, you can have different people with uh, from obviously like different uh, political camps, you know, slice of data. Um, obviously, when things are become overly politicized, you end up having, like you said, two op-eds where two people completely interpret the data in uh, like utterly different ways. Um, and part of that, there's just no getting past that. I think it's better having the, the data available. You sort of, you know, democratize it a bit, and you can have amateur wonks uh, take a crack at it. Um, but with respect to the Bay Area... I think our biggest problem is not like the denial of empirical fact. It's people saying that I, I totally understand what you're saying, but I don't care. Um, and for all the media attention that's given to working class neighborhoods, uh, you know, facing extreme housing pressures, I, I, our biggest problem region wide, I, I believe this to be true, is the sort of this entrenched homeowners that are tax protected that bought in 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, that uh, remains stalwart, you know, anti, um, anti-urbanists, anti or at least anti-build-anything-anywhere-ever. You know, I would say Paul Alto is my favorite rhetorical whipping boy, and if our housing crisis was a zombie apocalypse, Palo Alto would be patient zero. <laughs> like, it, it is majority homeowner. Prices are ridiculous there. It was, you know, birth, birthplace of a lot of really important tech companies. And that's, and that's part of the problem. We go to these planning commission meetings, and you know, I, I've even talked to people. This I get a little heated. I even talked to people that, about you know, this housing stuff, and they're like, "Oh yeah, no, I totally understand. Like San Francisco, like they don't build they don't build enough housing to house everybody. It makes everything more expensive." But I like that. I like that because it displaces people that I do not like. They poor people are going away. I like the architecture in San Francisco, and I would not trade one of these old buildings for a new building that let a hundred more people stay in the city because I don't really like those people anyway. Disgusting. Not everybody is that blatant about it. Some of them <laughs> like to lie to themselves about, you know, in different ways or at least won't admit that publicly. But that, that is sort of the problem. There is, at the end of the day, sort of a zero-sum game 
um, between people that kind of have everything because of the legal privileges that have been granted to them and everybody else. And that's all I'll say about that. <laughs> well, good point. I mean, demographics may be destiny. A lot of people bought their homes uh, and and benefited under Prop 13. They're reaching the end of the road to put not to find a point on it. Uh, and we could be having a demographic change in the area that could change that. That's all I can. Well, that's a, that's that's the big question: is will their children be happy homeowners in their old parents' houses? Yay or nay? They get the assessment rights. They will be out there if they want it to stay in the house forever. But will they? I think it's an open question. Sonia, I was talking to her, Sonia Trouss of the uh, of SF Barf and et cetera. Yeah, and she thought it just it's not cool. People aren't going to do it. I'm not sure I agree. I think there'll probably be a, a marginal shift. Like, certainly not everybody who could take advantage of that will. So I think even worst-case scenario, things get things get better at the margin. But, um, but yeah, I mean, with the way Prop 13 is, like, set up, like, why wouldn't you just retain title of that property and rent it out at exorbitant rates and, you know, yeah, I guess the question is, then they'll probably, everyone always says, oh, I agree, Prop 13 has some issues, but if you have, you know, uh, you know, the resident, primary resident, and I guess, yeah, it, it adds more wrinkles, but yeah, certainly if there's a loophole that you can be out of town and look at the benefits, yeah, everyone's going to take care of that. But to jump back to, to Josh, because I was really curious about your response to the uh, open data question of, yeah, how do you think if, if open data is one of the ways that we can improve uh, our current understanding, how do you work with all the people who may not have the time, ability, or predilection to really do the interpreting and just really want other people to do the analysis for them? Well, that, that's a really good uh, question, of course. There are programs uh, that mostly come out of the private sector that help you do market analysis, uh, even if you're, like me, a dummy. Uh, technically, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Tableau. Uh, that helps me visualize huge data sets, uh, and it's it's not GIS, but it's something that can help you see what trends and patterns are, you know, down to a, a, a very local level. Uh, I think yeah, yeah, that, Tableau's yeah. good, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and in Philadelphia, we have, uh, you know, majority African-American lower-income neighborhoods, and the civic associations, uh, they, get, they get interns coming in from the colleges to teach people how to use you know, analysis programs using all the open data that Philadelphia has. So I'm, I'm thinking that uh, the accessibility not just of data but also of training because uh, universities want to put their best foot forward these days and, and poor and working neighborhoods is you bring in interns that that could actually teach the civic association how to use it, and people can start making their own policy proposals, which we have in Philadelphia, and I assume it happens all over the Bay Area too, on a on a very local level. So we we've been talking for quite a while. Maybe it is time we uh, start looking at wrapping up. I, I guess going around, it's something I'm really curious about, just about everybody. How would you rate your own? optimism versus cynicism for just the status of, you know, how likely things are to get better in meaningful ways? Uh, start, starting with you, Josh. Uh, specifically for the Bay Area, I think that addressing the crisis in BART, which is a right now crisis, you know, one that makes you late for dinner with your husband, 
that the BART crisis makes me an optimist because when things like that start to fall apart, everybody starts to act, even even the sort of the forces behind the uh, throne that, that run the Bay Area. Uh, in other words, the, the deep pockets, commercial landowners. People want to fix BART. I think there's very, very few options, so I'm optimistic. Uh, and Jacob, how do you feel about these issues in the Bay Area or beyond? What's your what's your feelings today, optimism, pessimism? Well, in some ways, you would say to yourself, because, um, you know, Proposition 13 exists in California, um, you'd need a constitutional amendment to change it, that you, you might actually have the least hope for an area like the San Francisco Bay. Um, but I think that's also what makes these issues so palpable and um, felt so strongly, whereas, you know, in other parts of the United States, um, these these same issues regarding zoning and taxation um, are present, and they're causing huge problems. But, uh, yeah, you know, we were talking before about how it, it's hard to even motivate people here when they know that there's these huge problems. But, you know, compare that to, um, you know, areas of the country where, it's it's not as immediately felt, um, and so I think of anywhere, the the Bay Area um, is comparatively hungrier for change than, um, yeah, than those other areas. So for that reason, I am hopeful. Yeah, and uh, Jeff, uh, okay, uh, yeah. So how would you rate your overall, you know, standing right here today, right now, optimism, pessimism, cynicism? Where, where are you across the uh, across the board feeling? I'm, I'm definitely optimistic. Um, I've seen the way that political organizations evolved over the last, uh, really about two years, kind of since Sonia Trask got kind of going, and seen the proliferation of local Yimby groups, seen um, multiple city council places, multiple uh, city council um, councils and boards actually flip in the last election cycle. So I, uh, I think we're actually moving in the right direction. Well, it's been a pleasure. We've been in conversation with uh, Jeffrey Andrade Fong and Josh Vincent and Jacob Schwartz-Lucas. Uh, thanks, everybody, for being here.